0: would be doing a great disservice to the church, including to the young people of the church. Because rather than seeing this Lord's Day as being too doctrinal, we should look at it from a different perspective. Yes, this Lord's Day does contain many points of doctrine, but it's also very confrontational. When dealing with the presence of Christ both in heaven and on earth after his ascension the Catechism is directly confronting both the Roman Church and the Lutherans. Both of these groups also struggled how to formulate what the Ascension actually meant, especially when it came to the human nature of Christ. And as a result, because they didn't understand the Ascension properly, it had a severe impact on how they understood and celebrated the Lord's Supper. Since the Lord's Supper is something that we celebrate frequently, it's good for us to consider then the ascension of our Savior and also what it means today, and even to go into some of those doctrinal details as well. And therefore, I proclaim to you the Word of God with this theme, the risen Lord ascended into heaven. And we'll see first that his ascension is a temporary separation. Secondly, that it's done in his human nature. And third, that it's beneficial for his people. Our congregation, when we look at scripture, then there is no doubt about the reality that Christ has ascended into heaven. We can read about that very clearly in the first chapter of Acts. And unlike the resurrection, when Christ ascended into heaven, there were actually human witnesses who saw the Lord go into heaven. It all happened right before the eyes of his disciples, as the Catechism says. So these disciples, they experienced the breaking of personal face-to-face connection that they had with their teacher. For three years, they had walked with him every day. For three years, they had learned from his instruction. But now that was over. So in that sense, the ascension of Christ was a type of goodbye for the disciples. They could no longer speak face-to-face with the Lord Jesus as they had done so many times. With regards to his human nature, he was no longer on earth, as we confess. And so therefore, it's not a wonder that such an event would cause them to grieve. That's what we read in John chapter 16. Jesus says in verse 20 that they would weep. They would lament. Now some have understood that passage that we read from. To refer to the time between Christ's death and his resurrection. But that understanding doesn't fit with the context itself. Early on in the words of our scripture reading. Christ had been teaching them about the coming of the Holy Spirit. Why that was necessary. Why he would send the Spirit. And right at the beginning of that section, we read in verses 5 and 6, But now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. And yes, when he speaks about going away, that could perhaps refer to the separation that would be caused by his death. That separation also could cause grief, unnecessary as though that grief may be. And the reality was that this separation as well was for the good of his disciples and for the good of all his people. But again, it becomes clear that Christ has in mind the time that he would ascend into heaven. For We also read in verse 7, For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Well, we know from the Bible that the Holy Spirit coming to the disciples It would happen after Christ was taken up into heaven, not after the departure that was caused by his death. Which means, congregation, we are not speculating when we say that the Lord's ascension caused grief for his disciples. It is a human emotion that when we have to say goodbye to someone that we genuinely care about, and we don't know when we're going to see them again, this causes sadness. We know that we will miss the person. We will miss the discussions and the interactions that we had. We'll miss all the times that we shared together. And what makes it harder to bear is that we don't know when we will enjoy such fellowship again. Or if that will ever happen. And our Lord Jesus knew that this grief, it would be the natural response for his disciples. They would grieve about the fact that he was going to leave them. But he makes it clear that this separation, it was not a permanent separation. It was only a temporary separation. For a time there would be grief, but he says your grief will turn to joy. And that is because there will also be a reunion. He tells his disciples that the time will come when they will see him again and they will see him face to face. It's also what the Catechism makes clear in answer 46. Right now, we don't have face to face contact with our Savior. And so often, we wish that we could have that kind of fellowship. What a thing it would be to walk with Jesus. To follow Jesus. To have Jesus preaching the good news of the kingdom of God to us week in and week out. What a wonderful thing it would be to have Jesus here in our midst, living in our midst. Coming to our homes to visit us and instruct us. That would be great blessing, great encouragement. But right now it's not possible. He isn't physically here. He's ascended into heaven. But in time... He will come back. This physical separation that we have from our Lord. Is not something that's meant to be permanent. You can think back in redemptive history. When God created Adam and Eve. and he put them in the Garden of Eden. Then we read in Genesis that God would walk with them in the Garden in the cool of the day. There was perfect fellowship. Between Creator and And creation. Heaven and earth were perfectly united. But that was destroyed by sin. Sin has caused a separation of fellowship. Between God and his people. God could no longer walk with Adam and Eve. As he had done so in the past. And when Jesus Christ came to earth. He began repairing that fellowship. He was recreating that union between creator and creation. As a man, he walked with his disciples. He taught them every day about the kingdom of God. But his ministry here on earth was not the final point in God's plan of salvation. Everything is working toward that final goal when there is once again that perfect union. Between heaven and earth, when the new Jerusalem descends from heaven and the permanent dwelling of God is with man. And then it's at that time, congregation, that we will see him as he is. We read that in 1 John 3, verse 2. It's at that time that we will walk with our Savior as humans, but we will no longer be sinful humans. We will dwell with him in glory purged of all sin and weakness, raised up to a perfect new life by the power of God. When Christ returns, he will judge the living and the dead, after which there will be an eternity without the possibility of separation again. So yes, our Savior is physically absent from us right now. But a time is coming when that grief And that longing caused by separation, it will be replaced with the joy of reunion, dwelling eternally in the presence of our glorious head. At that time, it will be a perfect and glorious reunion between the creator and his creation. It's one for us to eagerly anticipate. It's one for us to eagerly look forward to. And now we come to our second point. we speak about the fact that our Savior is no longer present here in our midst physically, then we have to make sure that we define what we mean very carefully. Because while it's true that His human nature is no longer present here on earth, that doesn't mean that He has completely abandoned us. While His human nature is in heaven, we still have the presence of His divine nature. The Catechism says in answer 47, That with respect to his divinity, majesty, grace, and spirit, he is never absent from us. So the Catechism lays out very simply that while our Lord Jesus is one person, he has two natures, both a divine and a human nature. These two natures, united in one person, they're quite different from each other. His human nature is exactly like our human nature in every way. It's bound to one place. And since he has ascended into heaven, his human nature is in heaven alone. It cannot be here on earth. But his divine nature is very different. His divine nature is not bound to one place, it can be everywhere all at once. It's omnipresent. That's what comes out clearly in question and answer 48. There we confess that there are no limits to Christ's divine nature. Saying that his divine nature has any limits, that would be saying that God himself is somehow limited. And we know that God has no limits. We know that God is present everywhere at all times. We can think here of what it says in Psalm 139 Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. There is nowhere in this world that we can go to somehow be separated from the presence of God. It's impossible to hide from God. Because his divine nature is present everywhere. It's present in heaven. It's present on earth. And there's proof for that fact all around us. The Catechism says in answer 47. That this nature is present with regards to his divinity, majesty, grace, and spirit. His majesty. His is shown in the constant governing of creation over all the affairs of this world. We see His majesty and how He uses everything that happens here on earth to continue working to His ultimate goal. Christ has all authority in heaven and on earth. He said that right before He went into heaven. And He exercises that authority in every matter. As our eternal King, He continues to defend us and preserve us In the redemption he has obtained for us. His majesty is there. It's all around us. It's constantly working for us. But not only his majesty. His grace is always present. His grace is exactly what sustains us every day. It's by his grace that we receive every blessing of salvation. It's by his grace that he pours out gifts upon his members. From his place of glory. His grace surrounds us and protects us. And of course, he's also present in his spirit, the Holy Spirit. Christ promised to send the spirit to his people as we read in our scripture reading. And the Holy Spirit is dwelling in the hearts of each one of God's people, working and strengthening their faith guiding them in the ways of the Lord, helping them in their daily battle against sin. So no, we may not see Jesus Christ physically. We can't see him with our physical eyes at this point in history, but he is always present. And with the eyes of faith, then we perceive the different ways that he remains very active in our lives. Confessing Jesus Christ to be true God It means that we confess his divine nature is present everywhere and there's no exception. But confessing Jesus Christ to be true man means that believing in the fact that his human nature is no different than ours. Only now it's in its glorified state. And so we must distinguish between these two natures. Recognizing that while they remain perfectly united in the one person, they have different qualities and different characteristics. But in both the Roman Church and in the Lutherans, there's actually a failure to distinguish between those two natures. And so congregation with question and answers 47 and 48, the catechism becomes more confrontational. What the Romanists and the Lutherans really do is they try to make his human nature Equal to his divine nature. They teach that upon his ascension, some of the attributes of Christ's divine nature were transferred over to his human nature. And so, the human nature being glorified, according to Rome and according to the Lutherans, it's actually a kind of deification. That is, it becomes like God. And this would mean that his human nature could be present everywhere, that it too would be without limits. That's how they can defend their different understandings of the Lord's Supper as well. For if it's true that Christ's human nature can be present everywhere, then it's possible for Christ to be physically present in the bread and the wine of Lord's Supper. Or it's possible for his human nature to be in, with, and around the elements of the Lord's Supper, which is what the Lutherans believe. Well, here the catechism directly confronts those two groups and it tells them in no uncertain terms, no, you've got it all wrong. Christ's human nature is in heaven. You won't find it anywhere on earth, not even in the bread and the wine of Lord's Supper. But you will find his divine nature on earth. And that's because his divine nature is beyond his human nature, as we confess in answer 48. His divine nature extends far beyond where his human nature can't reach. When Christ ascended into heaven, then he did so as a man. A man in his glorified state. But ascending in a glorified state is not the same as being deified or becoming like God. The human nature... Remains exactly that. It doesn't take on any of the attributes of the divine nature. The two natures remain united in the one person. But they retain their unique attributes. And so yes question and answer 47 and 48 are quite doctrinal. But they are very necessary. Because if we do not keep them straight. Then we end up going in all kinds of different directions. In the rest of our life of faith as well any time that we celebrate the lord's supper then what you see on the table what you take in your hand it's bread and wine you will not see the physical body and blood of christ that's in heaven And that's why we are exhorted before we come to the table or before we partake in the Lord's Supper that we are to look with our eyes of faith, that we are to lift our hearts on high where Christ is physically seated at the right hand of God. So the focus is not on what we see here on earth. The focus is not on the bread or on the wine. The focus is not on anything we see with our physical eyes. The focus is on Jesus Christ who saved us by the sacrifice of his body. And he is not physically present here on earth. He's in heaven. We can only see him when we look with the eyes of faith. And when we look with those eyes, then we see that he is present in heaven for our benefit as well. We come to our third point. When you think about the different ways that the ascension of Christ impacts us, then it can be very easy to get an actually negative perspective. After all, we would be truly thankful to have Christ physically here in our presence, to enjoy the many blessings of him being with us humanly. And if he knew that his ascension was going to cause his disciples to grieve, then why would he still leave them? Well, despite the possible negative ways of thinking, the catechism ensures that we get the proper perspective. It comes out right away in question and answer 46. There it says that Christ is in heaven for our benefit. And then it comes back to that point in question and answer 49, where it directly asks, how does his ascension benefit us? The catechism then lists three specific ways that we are blessed by Christ being taken up into heaven. The first thing it says is that he is our advocate in heaven before his father. The fact is that if Christ were still here on earth. Then there would be no one to mediate on our behalf before the almighty God. But now we have Jesus Christ. The righteous one the one who has obtained for us the forgiveness of sins, he's right there before his father advocating on our behalf. So every time we fall into sin, every time we fail to live up to God's holy standard, Christ is interceding for us. We can think back to Lord's Day 12, where we confess that Jesus Christ is our great high priest. Well, that work of our great high priest continues, even though he's not humanly present here with us. Just because he has ascended into heaven, it doesn't mean that he's now relaxing. He's not taking a vacation after his hard work here on earth was done. No, his work had only begun because he went up into heaven to continue his work. And because his human nature can only be present in one place at a given time, he went up to intercede on behalf of each one of his people before the throne of God. So in this way, you can say that Jesus at this time is being the most efficient in applying his work for his people. If he had remained here on earth, then he would be limited to the area that he was in. But seated in glory at God's right hand, he can intercede on behalf of all his people. Because he sees and he knows everything that happens here on earth. Every time there is sin committed against the most holy majesty of God by his child here on earth, then the Son in heaven reminds his Father that that sin is covered by his precious bloodshed on the cross. That's what he's doing for each one of us. That's what he's doing for each of his children spread around this whole world. And that in itself should be a reason enough for us to rejoice in the ascension of our Savior. And yet the Catechism says, no, there's even more. It says, secondly, we have our flesh in heaven as a sure pledge that he will take us to himself. The fact that Christ is in heaven with his human nature, in his glorified state, it reminds us constantly of the fact that we are not presently at home. By his ascension, Christ calls us to live by faith. And not by sight. So easily we make ourselves at home in this world and also in the ways of the world. We want to be comfortable. We want to make sure that we're established in this life. And so we focus on building up a good life for ourselves. But the fact that Christ has ascended, it calls us to focus our attention in other places. For consider what Hebrews 11 says about Abraham and the other patriarchs. In verse 13, it says that having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on earth. It continues in verse 16. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Or you can think of Moses. Hebrews 11 verse 26. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. For he was looking to the reward And Moses, we know he never entered the promised land. He was forbidden to do so because of sin. His reward was not anywhere here on earth. But it was with Christ. Living in his presence. As we live in faith, and our attention is not to be focused only on this world and the things that we can get out of it. This world is a pilgrimage that we must walk through to reach our final home, the new Jerusalem. As we'll see in our third benefit shortly, this life does have meaning. It does matter. This life is not just something we have to suffer through. But we're reminded at all times that this is not it. This is not our final destination. That is the new Jerusalem where we will live with Christ in the flesh. That is, it will not be some kind of spiritual existence. But our body and soul will be reunited and we will dwell in our glorified state with the ascended Lord forever. The very fact that Christ is currently in heaven in the flesh. That's a promise to us that at the time ordained by God, we too will dwell in that existence. And then the words of our scripture reading will become a true reality. We read in John 16 verse 22 that Christ said to his disciples... So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. That is true for his disciples, but that is true for us as well. Right now we wish to see our Lord face to face. But a time is coming when that wish will become reality. And when that time comes, we will rejoice like never before. And there will be none who can remove that joy. But that doesn't mean we have no joy now. Because already in the meantime, we may begin to experience the joy of faith. And this is because of the third benefit that we receive as a result of his ascension. Christ sends us his spirit as a counter pledge. It's by the spirit That our perspective is focused in the right direction. Because without the Spirit, we focus only on ourselves. And we focus only on the things of this world. And then it would be very easy to get very discouraged. Because you see all the misery. You see the brokenness. You see the suffering. And you don't only see it all around you. You experience it for yourselves time and again. But by the power of the Spirit who dwells in our hearts... We seek the things that are above. Which means, brothers and sisters, we don't focus on the things of this world alone. We focus on Christ and on the gift of salvation he obtained for us. We focus on serving God. We focus on living in faith and obedience. Because of the work of the Holy Spirit, our lives take on a whole new meaning as we make our pilgrimage to our final home rather than living for the self and gratifying the sinful desires of the flesh, we focus on Christ and what he has obtained for us. So the Spirit helps us to have that proper focus and perspective. And yet we shouldn't miss the fact that the Catechism refers to the Spirit as a counter-pledge. The Spirit is a constant reminder to each one of us that the Lord Jesus Has not forgotten us. And that he has not abandoned us. As we face the onslaught. Of our sworn enemies. Every day again. The spirit continually. Directs us to our savior. Who has obtained. Our victory. Indeed the spirit. Provides us with the constant assurance. That our Lord is faithful. To that promise he made just before he ascended. Surely. I am with you always to the very end of the age. And with that certain knowledge, we continue looking forward in faith to the time when the end of the age has come and we dwell with Christ in the flesh in that state of glory for all eternity. Amen.